Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Just to give you a picture of what's going on in the bond world, you see the 30-year yield reaching new all-time lows, one89 Eight nine percent on on the thirty year yep. Treasury. You see the dollar having its worst sell off versus its peers of twenty twenty. Gold shooting higher. A big question of what's driving this. Is it just the fear that the coronavirus is spread is bleeding into the services and industries in the United States, uh, previously thought to be a little more immune, or is this something larger? Joining us now is Mark Rosenberg, founder and chief executive officer of GeoQuant, uh, which is uh, based in San Francisco and looks at the geopolitical risk generally and the global picture. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia University. Mark, can you give us a landscape here? We talk a lot about the coronavirus and what the potential bleed through could be on industries, but then economists say, well, there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. But on the political front, is there something that's going to be equally uh, potentially difficult for markets to digest on the political sphere? Sure. I think I think with with a health risk like the coronavirus, um, you want to look at the implications for social instability in the countries affected, and the, and in turn, uh, the stability of the government. Now, those generally have more latent effect on on markets. But I think when it comes to a, a large economy like China, um, if there were indications that this uh, that this virus was um, disrupting kind of social stability in the country, or if, if there was news as there has been of late that it may be weakening the government. Um, then I think you can get some concern around the potential of the government to respond to a shock like 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 a health um, like a disease outbreak like uh, like the coronavirus. So, Mark, we obviously are getting into the heat of the election cycle here. Uh, we kind of know where President Trump stands on a number of issues that are important to markets and investors. How are you when you talk to clients? How are you framing up the Democratic side of the field? For us, it's really about the strength of the Democratic Party and kind of more generically the, the opposition to the incumbent um, versus, um, you know, the, 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 the Trump administration or the current incumbent. And, you know, according to our models, that's probably the primary driver of Trump's likely reelection right now is, is, in fact, the weakness, the relative weakness of the Democratic Party as an opposition party, as demonstrated, I think, by some of those dysfunction in the primary process by the um, still unclear field, the, the growing likelihood that a, a more kind of uh, divisive extreme candidate like Bernie Sanders will be the, the nominee. Those are the factors driving, you know, what we call kind of um, uh, institutional risk, uh, institutional support risk for, uh, um, for the administration. That risk is down as the Democratic Party um, looks weaker and weaker. So let's talk a little bit about the Democratic Party. It seems like after this week's debate, uh, it was the first that Michael Bloomberg, who is founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP and this radio station, uh, was a participant. The, Bernie Sanders appeared to consolidate a lot of his support. People thought that he emerged a winner. They also thought, though, that President Trump consolidated his win, given right. the fact that there was a lot of cross, uh, you know, circular firing squad type of activity. How significantly do you think the Democrats were set back? I'm not sure the debate itself was any kind of critical juncture in setting back the Democrats. Um, I think it was more a symptom of, you know, what we saw in, in the previous debates and, and in pre and then the primaries and caucuses so far, which is, um, you know, a field that's that's heavily divided. 
um, and a and a group of candidates that um, all you know ostensibly agree on the goal of defeating Donald Trump and uniting to do so, um, but are now just inherently engaged in a process, the primary process, um, where they're, they're in some ways making that less likely because they are fighting against each other as opposed to the, the common, you know, quote-unquote enemy. So, Mark, Bernie Sanders is leading in the polls right now. Can he beat President Trump? In in our, in according to our models, and again, um, you know, these are kind of generic incumbent survival models. No, um, in that uh, Bernie Sanders um, will be a, a candidate that would have trouble uniting the Democratic Party, um, and as such, would weaken the strengths uh, of the opposition vis-a-vis the incumbent, and so the incumbent would be more likely to win. Um, and so, um, it, the, in our the scenarios we're running with our models, of Sanders um, uh, candidacy. Uh, makes a Trump re-election more likely. What about Pete Buttigieg? What about Michael Bloomberg, uh, whose performance was panned pretty significantly by all most of the coverage following the debate? Again, generically a more moderate candidate, uh, a candidate um, more capable of winning, of, winning, of winning swing voters, of winning suburban white voters in key swing states that are, in many cases, the, the, the key to the election. Um, is is likely to beat Trump, right? And and more li- and certainly makes Trump's re-election less likely. So f- in our models, it's a relatively simple trade-off between um, a a candidate that is more likely to win, you know, what political scientists call the median voter, um, and which in the case of of key states is really a swing voter, um, or one less likely to win those voters. And and in our models, Sanders is less likely, whereas a more moderate candidate is more likely. So, Mark, is there any indication that if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination, that he or the Democratic Party could move him more to the center to maybe appeal to some of those swing voters? Do you kind of put any of those odds in your model? We don't model that directly. Um, that does make kind of common political sense and is generally the way uh, uh, party candidates run in the general election. They generally pivot. Um, uh, more to the center um, in order to capture a larger swath of the electorate. Sanders has made a career um, uh, of not doing that. Uh, and so um, just anecdotally, um, it suggests that that kind of dynamic is maybe less likely this time around. Um, but, but to be sure, you know, in a, in a more, um, with a more generic candidate, that's exactly what we, you would expect to happen. Uh, and given, again, that all Democratic candidates are at least vocally saying their priority is beating Trump, that would be the right strategy. It's just not clear that that is what will actually happen. Mark, uh, just real quickly here, I'm wondering, based on history, how soon does the Democratic field have to shrink or consolidate support behind one or two candidates in order to have a better chance going forward of defeating President Trump? There isn't really a clear historical pattern. Um, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the primary calendar, in terms of opposition beating incumbents, um, you know, the primary calendar is relatively set in the United States, um, and so there isn't really a kind of date by which the Democrats need to, um, you know, coalesce or form a coalition by which they make um, their success in the election more likely. I think the general rule in this case is the sooner the better. 
Mark Rosenberg, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your thoughts. Mark Rosenberg, founder and CEO of GeoQuant, also an adjunct professor uh, at Columbia University. Uh, he is based in San Francisco. Some interesting commentary about the election and kind of what their models are showing. And uh, it appears to be, you know, from uh, uh, Mark's comments, you know, pretty predisposed or, or you know, towards President Trump getting reelected uh, unless, you know, maybe the field somehow coalesces around a candidate and, and maybe can put up a stronger fight. Yeah, and then there'll be the question of whether any uh, candidate on the Democratic side could get something done without the both uh, sides of Congress. Meanwhile, I should just mention that right now, Fed Funds futures are pricing in a full half a percentage point rate cut through the end of 2020. So really shifting yep. their rate cut expectations forward. This morning, everyone was watching 30-year Treasury yields, which were hovering on the precipice of an all-time new record. And it reached it after uh, the PMI data that came out this morning from market. U.S. business activity shrank this month for the first time since 2013, with the services section of the index seeing a particularly big drop-off. The question here is, what is the message being sent by bonds, which are reaching new all-time lows? And how incoherent is it with equities reaching or hovering near all-time highs? Joining us now, Ben Emmons, Managing Director of Global Strategy at Medley Global Advisors is joining us here in our interactive broker studios. So let's start there. What is the message being sent by 30-year yields at all-time lows? So on the one hand, Lisa, it's a technical message, right? There's a apparent positioning going on with hedge funds going short and the asset managers going long, and that's probably very much driven by different views about where the economy will be heading, as well as hedging against the downside risk of this virus outbreak. On the other hand, it's it's to that fundamental picture, I think the inflation picture is going to uh, see a significant moderation this year. If if the collapse in China's, as we speak, happening, you know, in terms of production data, then inflation data in China will will, will go down quite a bit, and that will really transcend down globally. And I think this is another reason why bond yields are lower in the United States. Do you th what do you, how do you think the Fed is going to respond to what appears to be uh, a growing problem? It doesn't appear like we've seen the peak of the coronavirus risk. So all these central banks in the Fed are monitoring, as they say. And, you know, we know that they don't have the precise tools to combat any of this. But they they do know, as we know now, is that companies are responding quite dramatically to this outbreak, you know, shutting off production, shutting down air traffic. So there will be something of a message there to tell to, to companies about, you know, well, this is really something that, that's going to drag down global growth just because it's a virus outbreak that we've had in several cases before and by far not as, as severe as a normal influenza. At the same time, central banks will likely stand by with liquidity, as we saw from the PBOC and the Fed still ongoing, that other central banks will do that too. And I think that liquidity operation is pretty effective, right? If you think about the shock that we just went through, it could have been much more severe if, if we did not have liquidity injections by the PBOC and you know ongoing by the Fed. So will the ECB and the BOJ follow with something like that? Not, not unlikely if, if we're getting more downdraft in data. I want to go back to something you were talking about, this sort of technical factor with hedge funds going short, treasuries and insurance companies, pensions going long, particularly on the long end. And I'm wondering if this is a short squeeze that we're observing, which is really responsible for the rally that we're seeing in treasuries, then is it potentially not that negative or even positive for equities because it keeps borrowing costs so low that it continues to support the relative valuation uh, case for equities? 
Yeah, it, I think you're right about that because yeah. if you if bonds work well as it as in total return, as say a hedge against the downside risk, what a long long asset manager would do as sort of that view. In addition, that you say low borrowing costs, which affect for positively for corporations and housing and, and consumer spending, then yes, this 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 and that's typically by the way the case when you have flight to safety. Believe it or not, there's actually stimulus to the economy. Very often happened that way. We saw it in August that way too, and subsequent data recovered. Low interest of falling long-term interest rates tend to do that. So I think this is another phase of like short squeeze, fight the safety, leads to ultimately stimulus in the economy. And that could be positive for stocks. Some of the uh, consensus trades that we heard coming into 2020 was maybe this is the time where international markets will outperform the U.S. Does this growing concern about the global economy featuring China, does that call that trade into, into play, maybe into question? I'm actually on the side pole of that it actually makes it even more compelling okay. than, than before. And he, here's why. So if, if you think about the data that's coming out now, say the PMI data in Japan overnight, or the export orders out of Taiwan and, and so forth, pretty big drops in that data, right? And, and that's what you would expect if you have a production shutdown in China. That's pretty extraordinary to, to go through that at the moment. But the more that data drops, the more encouraging the V-shape, as we call it, recovery would become. So I'm more in that camp, which makes actually the relative value difference between US and foreign markets even more compelling. And yes, the, the, the valuation of Asian markets is at a sort of 15, 20% discount relative to US markets. And if the US markets are benefiting so much from a flight to safety with stock values up, bond value up, and the dollar up, it becomes a case at some point that anticipating this V-shape that foreign assets look more attractive. So I remain on that trade. It's just a little bit knocked out of bounds for the yep. first quarter. <laughs> it will come back in the second half, I think. When is bad news bad news again? Well, that's another good point, Lisa, of course, because the scare that we have a little bit in markets today is about this word pandemic, right? Is it becoming a pandemic in Asia and then it spills to the rest of the globe? But you also have to put that in perspective how previous viruses have, have worked. They tend to do spread around. And it really comes down to, that, I think, about the infrastructure in countries, how to deal with an outbreak of a virus. You know, the most worrying would be in, the, in, the, in the, say, South Africa or African nations, right, who do not have any uh, infrastructure as the WHO warned for. But for the developed markets, that's a different story. And because markets react now because a virus outbreak links to you know, production shutdown, delay of any kind of activity because people have to stay home. There's still a lot of work around, I think, to that too. A lot of companies are preparing to say, you know, this <coughs> supply chain shift will, shift will happen anyway. I'm going to prepare differently to continue my production because, you know, you got to adhere to stockholders. So by and large, I think pandemic is the fear factor in markets. But ultimately, I think it's it's still going to be a recovery from here, not not a recession. Okay. Ben Emmons, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate chatting with you uh, as we do periodically. Ben Emmons, Managing Director, Global Macro Strategy for Medley Global Partners, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Really interesting to hear uh, how the decline in yields could end up being a positive for stocks, even though people usually right. look at the flight to safety as being a negative message for equities. Sort of the modern conundrum of markets. Yep. Absolutely. So we had the S&P down here, 25 off the lows. Uh, the Dow down 203 points. That's 29,019 on the Dow Jones Industrials. This is Bloomberg. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Tara LaChapelle. She covers all things industrial for uh, Bloomberg Opinion. And for those Warren Buffett watchers, tomorrow's a very important day. That's when Berkshire Hathaway releases its annual letter. We get a sense of 
kind of how Warren is viewing the world. To help us preview that, we have our good friend Tara. So Tara, again, Warren Buffett watchers, tomorrow's a big day. What's the expectation here? Because they've been kind of quiet on the acquisition front. I think what people are really hoping for is that Warren Buffett is going to talk a little bit more about what he's going to do with all that cash. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway's cash was $128 billion uh, in the latest quarter that they reported. So we'll find out tomorrow when his letter comes out. We'll have uh, the fourth quarter earnings report with it and we'll see if that cash moved at all uh, he didn't make any significant acquisitions during the period as we know and last week we got their 13f filing and saw that they didn't really um, make any tremendous purchases in the stock market either he bought a stake in Kroger a small stake in Biogen but nothing really big and we don't think that they've done a lot of Berkshire buybacks yet even though he's talked about doing that so hopefully he can you know get people excited about what's gonna happen and maybe he'll be able to find his big elephant this year, the big acquisition he's been trying to do. He turns 90 in August, so one would think that, you know, time is of the essence and he'd want to do something. Yeah, although throwing some cold water on that Berkshire vice chair saying in an interview with Bloomberg, we're gradually getting more pessimistic about using our money. <laughs> it's been a long time since we bought anything. This is Charlie Munger, and I have to say, again, Warren Buffett problems, the idea that you just have so much money, you don't know what to do with it. But it, you know, raise a really good question, Tara, which is why don't they buy back more shares or just give massive dividends to their investors? Yeah, I mean, we're not sure. I mean, we know Buffett and Munger are really opposed to the idea of a dividend. And he's kind of started to mention that more often the last couple of years. It used to be kind of unheard of that they would even do something like that. So the fact that he's brought it up, I just don't think they're at the point of being willing to pay a big one-time special dividend. I think maybe that's something his success would want to be able to have the opportunity to do should they need it. Um, but I think Buffett, his goal is still finding a deal. And Munger always tends to be sort of the more pessimistic one of the two. Buffett in his letter every year, you know, he always gives that pep talk about America and how great America's prospects are and, you know, kids born today are better off than he was and so on and so forth. And I don't think that'll change in this letter, but I think you you will see that growing frustration with the markets that he just hasn't been able to find anything to put this money to work on. It's interesting, Terry, you mentioned succession. Where, what's the status of that? I mean, they just kicked this can down the road and down the road. Do we have any greater clarity? I know there's some new hires, pre-senior positions, but what's the latest? I think, if anything, it's gotten more uncertain because so a couple years ago, they did promote uh, Greg Abel to run to be vice chairman of everything that didn't have to do with their insurance business. And Ajit Jain, who came from the insurance side, they put him in charge of their huge insurance operations. And so that kind of set the two up to be the next in line to become successor. Ajit's a little bit older, and it seems like Greg was is kind of the favorite for the job. Greg also got to speak at last year's annual meeting for the first time publicly, which was kind of unusual and I think really symbolic. But then uh, Todd Combs, who came from the uh, investing side of the business, was promoted to run Geico. And I think that got a lot of people thinking that is Todd another person that he's looking at, or maybe there will be sort of a split role when his successors take over, someone doing capital allocation, another person running the operational side of the business. We just don't know. So hopefully he addresses that, though, knowing Buffett, he probably won't say very much. Yeah. Although in 2019, just to put this into perspective of how much pressure they're under, uh, they missed a bunch of deals and their shares rose at a slower pace, rose at a slower pace than the S&P 500. It was their worst worst underperformance since 2009. There's a question, is their strategy one that fit with another time in history of the stock markets that is no longer? 
and that they are really coming to that realization at a time when they aren't sure how to deploy their cash. It's true. I mean, the true Buffett stands, they don't really worry much about the stock price and the fact that it's lagging, which is kind of funny. It's a very unusual trait that Berkshire has still. But I think, you know, after going to last year's meeting and seeing that the investor base really reflected what we see at Berkshire itself, where it's, it skews older. These are people that have a lot of respect for Buffett, but I don't know how they get that younger generation generation interested in a stock that's lagging so much. So I think this is going to become a bigger question when his successor is in charge. You know, does this strategy work? Does being a big conglomerate with all this cash that's very difficult to put to work, is is that the best way to run this? Or do they need to change strategy? And, and I don't think that'll ever happen under Buffett, but I think those questions start to arise when you think about when he's not there any longer. So you're working tomorrow, aren't you, Tara? I am. Bright and early. <laughs> I just honestly, why do they do it on Saturday? I, I think, you know, he, he has said, who knows if this is the case, but he has said that, you know, he doesn't want the stock overreacting to things when they release during closer to market times. And especially now that the way they have to report their stock holdings and how that changes their earnings. But I, I think he just likes the journalists spotlight. working on Saturdays. And the spotlight, <laughs> because nobody else is going to compete. Oh, that's a good point. Exactly. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Yes. yes. Tara LaChapelle of Bloomberg Opinion. Thank you so much, as always, for your insights here. Uh, really amazing. 128 billion dollars of cash. They own 250 million shares of Apple. Yeah, they've That's actually more thing. than doubled yeah. the, the shareholdings since 2016 wow. when they started getting in. They own 79 billion dollars of wow. the shares. But Warren Buffett said this is not a tech story for him. It's one of share buybacks and dividends, as well as the consumer story, right, right. which is really interesting. That's what he understands more than the tech side. Well, we got some economic data this morning that showed U.S. business activity shrank in February for the first time since 2013 as the coronavirus hit supply chains and made firms hesitant to place orders. To get a sense of what's going on, we welcome our good friend Tom Orlick. He's a chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, spent, lived, and worked many years in Beijing, has a real feel for what's going on in, in China. He joins us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. So the data that came out of the market PMI today really brought home for many in the market that this coronavirus is going to be an economic event, it appears. Where do you see the biggest risk from what's going on in China right now? Um, so I'm, I'm a bit surprised to see this hitting the U.S. services sector so early. Um, certainly, this is going to be a big blow for China in the first quarter. Certainly, there's going to be supply chain snarl ups, which are going to mean the impact ripples around Asia and around the world. Um, the U.S., though, seems a long way away. Certainly, the U.S. services sector is not very integrated into what's going on in China. Um, in some ways, the trade war uh, was about President Trump trying to get more access for the U.S. services sector to the Chinese economy. Um, so the fact that we're seeing the U.S. numbers coming off uh, so much and so quickly, uh, I think, uh, rings an alarm bell um, that the global ripples from this virus could be bigger and appear more quickly than anyone anticipated. Tom, is there also an implication that perhaps there was more weakness underneath that was building regardless of the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, that is also um, something to think about, Lisa. Uh, I think people were coming into uh, 2020 uh, with a certain amount of optimism. Uh, we had some easing from the Fed. We had easing from the People's Bank of China. 
the ECB did what they could to spur European growth. Uh, of course, the trade truce um, meant there was some optimism about what was going to happen to exports over the course of the year. Um, the coronavirus has completely changed the narrative. Um, it, at a minimum, it means any kind of recovery is going to be delayed until the second quarter. Um, it could mean that we're in for another year of very bumpy growth and elevated risks of a downturn. So, Tom, based on you know, the work you've done, the contacts you have in China, what's your best guess as to how much of the economy is really being impacted? How much are people back to work? How many, how much, you know, what percentage are staying, are still at home? What percentage of the economy is really back versus offline, I guess? I mean, that that is the $14 trillion question, Paul. Um, and we've been trying to answer it through a variety of different means. Uh, we've been looking at high-frequency data on passenger travel. Uh, we've been looking at FX trading volume, which is a proxy for what's going on with imports and exports. We've been reading the corporate announcements, speaking to our contacts across China. Um, our best estimate is that around 50% of China is back at work. Um, and that, sustained over the course of a month, would mean that China's GDP in the first quarter doesn't grow at all uh, and potentially contracts on a sequential basis. This is this is important, especially what you were saying earlier about how in the entire world there seems to be a faster bleed through of the effect of the coronavirus and, and efforts to contain it. I'm wondering whether you think that this calls into question the V-shaped recovery that so many economists are talking about. So when we think about China, um, one of the reasons why I'm not succumbing to uh, extreme pessimism right now um, is because China's government is really effective at closing things down. We see that right now, hundreds of millions of people effectively under lockdown, under quarantine. But China's government is going to be really effective at opening things up again as well. Um, we've just had some announcements from the Politburo, the top level of China's leadership, and they indicate that the balance of concern in China, well, certainly they're still very concerned about the outbreak and public health and, and minimizing the risks there, but they're also increasingly concerned about growth and getting people back to work. Uh, and I think one possibility in the next week or two, um, if the government thinks that the public health risks can be contained, is that we see an accelerated move to get China's workers back into the factories, back into the offices, um, at which point the V-shaped recovery, which a lot of people are kind of implicitly penciling in, uh, will start to look like more of a real possibility. Hey, Tom, are you? I know in your work you, you look at kind of what corporations say and do. Are you surprised this past earnings season we haven't had more companies call out the coronavirus as a risk to either their supply chain or their demand? I mean, I know Apple did in a pretty high-profile way, but I'm surprised that like even Deere today didn't really mention that much at coronavirus being a risk. Right. So, so on this, Paul, I, I want to give a, a brief shout out to our colleagues in Bloomberg Intelligence who are just comprehensively on top of the industrial story and the company story and, and certainly suggest that people go and take a look at what they're saying to get all the details on the industry level um, impact. What we've done is try and track corporate announcements um, to give us a, a kind of a view on the supply chain risks. 
Um, and one of the things which struck us reading through around 180 corporate transcripts um, is that the degree of concern that we're hearing from the multinational boardroom doesn't really match up with the, the bleak reality on the ground in China. Yes, there are certainly more boardrooms, more corporations now talking about the risks and giving some detail and some color on how they see it impacting their company. Um, but there's an awful lot saying, yeah, we're going to wait and see, or yeah, we see some risks, but we've got some inventory, so we're going to manage through. Um, uh, and to us, that doesn't seem to be sufficiently taking account of the, the way in which China has really closed down now for several weeks. Tom Orlick, thank you so much for being with us uh, and for a dose of reality of why you're not totally jumping on the pessimism bandwagon just yet, uh, but still have some concerns about what's going on. Yeah, I think his, you know, his estimate coming out of Bloomberg Economics about maybe 40 to 50 percent of the uh, economy is still kind of offline. Is a, and that's a that's a big number, and it just kind of calls into question the duration, as Tom was suggesting, if it goes on for the, you know, a, you know, longer could have a material impact on. Q1 GDP. Yeah, Tom Orlick, chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. There's also the question of the spread throughout Asia. Japan and South Korea in particular are in the forefront with Japan, seeing its cases double overnight. South Korea also seeing an increase. Japan in particular, the population is older. There is a culture not to take a sick day. Uh, so people coming in and there are a number That's of cases yeah. that have been popping up in different parts that the government can't really track a lot of pressure on that government, given the fact already that there seemed to be a slowdown uh, in the work and this seems to be affecting the yen, which has very much been in the focus and weakening, although today kind of stable. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.